All right, well, good morning again. It is good to see everyone here uh, this morning. If you did not receive a bulletin and you'd like one to take sermon notes on the back, there are a few left back there. And also, if you are new with us, in the back seat of your pocket is a Connect card. We'd love for a chance to get to know you. You can just leave it in your seat or drop it in the offering box behind, and we would love to connect with you in that way. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been journeying through this letter, and we get to this portion of Scripture uh, that might seem very familiar uh, to us. It's the love passage, and we might have heard it read at weddings. It might be something that we recite to ourselves, but this morning we are going to look at it in detail to see what Paul is trying to teach us today uh, through love. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 13. Actually, we're going to be starting from a back portion of 12 and running into 13, and we will read there. It'll also be on your screen. Let's read together, starting in chapter 12, verse 29. Paul says this, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When I was in college, I was visiting some family in Tennessee, and 
whenever I'm on a road trip, I was coming back home, whenever I'm on a road trip, I am all about getting in, getting out, making good time. Like I am following generously the 10% rule. If you're going in a 70, you can go 77 and you know, hoping that a cop's not going to pull me over. I make quick ins and outs into gas stations. Like I am there for the time because I'm a homebody. I want to be home. I don't want to be on the interstate fighting all this traffic. I just want to get home. So this particular trip, I was making really good time, uh, and it was looking like I was going to be home about 5 o'clock. And right when I crossed over the Mississippi Bridge and got into Louisiana is when I put the map to the side and just started cruising, because I knew the way home. I didn't need any more directions. I knew the exit to take, the quickest exit to take, to get home the fastest. I had about two and a half hours left, and I'd be home. And it was about two hours later that I realized I was approaching Ruston and that I never took my exit and I still had about an hour and a half left on the trip. I got completely distracted. I lost all sense of where I was and what I was doing because I felt comfortable in what I was doing. I put aside the directions and just kept driving. I was completely asleep at the wheel, in a sense. Paul is addressing a church that in a similar way is completely asleep at the wheel. They believe they know They believe that they have attained these higher gifts. They believe that they have attained full knowledge and wisdom, and they have abandoned what Christ Jesus has called them to in loving one another, one body in Christ. We see all of the foolish divisions that has happened within this church. And last week we saw that even the gifts of the Spirit has divided them to where they are dividing against one another and promoting themselves, and this is not the way. And Paul is addressing this church to show them a more excellent way. Here's our main idea today. Our main idea is this. Thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, coming off of that, love is not, love is not a higher or greater spiritual gift. Notice what Paul said. He is going to show us that love is a more excellent way, a manner of life in which all gifts and the life of the church is to find their place. If we have gifts that we display, if we have works that we do, and they are not grounded in love, Paul tells us we are nothing. We have been distracted and we have lost the way. So let's look at a few ways that this plays out for us. Our first point is this this morning. God doesn't expect each of us to do all things because we've all received various gifts. Now, if you'll remember from last week, the gifts are bestowed on the body for the edification of the body. It is a gift not to an individual to take pride in ourselves for self-gain or advantage, but to benefit the church. The word that we have for spiritual gifts, you'll remember, doesn't literally translate to spiritual gifts. It literally translates to grace gifts. God has given us these gifts of grace for the body, and they are not for us individually. They're for the church corporately. Next, we saw that the gifts highlight our need for each other and the beauty and diversity of the local body. Not all of us have the same gift, and not one of us has every gift. We need each other. We need each other as we give, are given these grace gifts from God to work together and to be the body of Christ. We saw that the Spirit apportions or gives these gifts to whom he wills as he wills. 
We saw multiple times last week that Paul says the Spirit gives as he determines. This doesn't become mystical for us when we become a Christian. We don't become Spider-Man and have the power of these gifts to just wield as we want to. These are given to God, I mean to us, from God, as he determines. And then we saw all gifts are important. But in contrast, what Paul wants us to see today, that God doesn't expect us to do all things because we've all received various gifts, but, but God expects us all to walk in the pathway of love. The spiritual, love is not a spiritual gift that some receive and some don't. You can't say, well, I'm loving and I'm angry. Like, it doesn't work that way. God expects us all to work in love. Why? First, it's this. Jesus commands it. Jesus commands it. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. It'll be on your screen if you want to flip there. It's John 13. Jesus says this. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is it that separates us from the world? It's our love for one another. It's not the miraculous. It's not a pedigree. It's not our ability to perform or do. It is our commitment and love towards one another as Christ Jesus has commanded it. And this is the emphasis behind Paul speaking uh, to the church in Corinth. He says, if I speak in tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy, fathom all mysteries, if I have faith that moves mountains, if I give all that I possess and I don't have love in either of these, I'm nothing. And notice the specific gifts Paul mentions as we read here. Just in these first four verses, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, service, generosity, acts of mercy, Paul is addressing all of these various gifts and how they can be distorted if we do not operate in a manner of love. Are these gifts important? Do they benefit the body? Yes, but without love, it's nothing. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, uh, The Mark of a Christian, his final words are profound. He says this, Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Schaefer's right. It's not that we have 100 or 200 or 500 in worship on Sunday morning. It's not that our Sunday school or worship or preaching is perfectly executed. It's not that we do ministry in our community with effectiveness. It's that all of these things, everything we do, should be grounded in love and display love. 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to tell us, for Christ's love compels us. It's his love that moves us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus' command, a new command I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. So why is this such an emphasis from Paul and Jesus? One, Jesus commands it, but second, and Jesus embodies it. If you have your Bible, still flip to John 13. I'll have it on the screen. But the first verse, and listen to how powerful this verse is. It says this, Jesus knew 
that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. That last part, he loved them to the end. Knowing what was about to take place, knowing everything, all of their faults, everything about them, Jesus loved them to the end. Now, if you had to describe yourself, if you had to like, have a placard that says, hi, my name is John, uh, what would you say? My name's John, I'm the husband to Jessica, we have four kids that we love, I'm a pastor to church, like how, what would it be that you would describe yourself at? Maybe it would be a hobby or a job or something that you enjoy, I don't know. What would it be for you? Now think back, think back to the very first time God self-describes himself where God says, hello, my name is Yahweh, and this is who I am. It's in Exodus chapter 34. It's the very first time. So you get all the way through Genesis, 34 chapters into Exodus, and this is the very first time God gives his own self-description. And you know what he says? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now I want to point out this last portion here, steadfast love and faithfulness. There are multiple Hebrew words that just get translated into English like amen, hallelujah, hosanna, but it's not true for this word that gets translated to unfailing love or steadfast love. The Hebrew word is hased, and it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, but it's pronounced hased. Here are a few instances where this has said is used. Isaiah 54, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love, my hased, for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. Nehemiah, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in hased. Psalm 89, I will declare that your hased stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. I have made a covenant with you, my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Hased is this loyal covenant love that God has for us. It's this unfailing love. And said is almost an untranslatable love to us in the English language. It's a no-holds-barred mercy. said is covenant faithfulness, even if it costs God the lifeblood of his beloved son. said is a type of love that turns the entire house over to find the missing coin. Hased is the kind of love that chases us to the ends of the earth, leaves the 99, picks us up, places us atop the divine shoulders, and dances all the way home. This is a delighting love, an unfailing love. This is Hased. And attempting to squeeze it, a huge word like Hased into one tiny English word is like trying to catch a waterfall in a cup. Hased is, is such a magnificent word of God's unfailing, loyal, never-ending love. And there is only really one word that encompasses the totality of what Hased is, and that's Christ himself. 
And then this is what Jesus commands for us, to love as he loves, to chesed like he chesed's. Think of this. I'll give you the first part of this verse, and many of you might be able to recite it after me. What does God require of you, O man? To act justly, love chesed, and to walk humbly with your God. So Paul is telling us, and Jesus is telling us, this new command to love as he loves. For us, the body, the more excellent way is to love each other with an unfailing, unrelenting, completely merciful love. Paul goes on in verse four to talk about what love is. And love is patient, kind, rejoices with truth, protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. What love is not, it does not envy, boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil. What we see from this is that love is not merely a feeling or an attitude. Love is not merely a feeling or an attitude that wells up inside of us. Rather, love is the name for specific actions or patient and costly service to others. It is a chesed type of love. So what I want us to do, I want us to work through just briefly um, this portion of scripture, and I want you to recite it with me, and then we're just going to make a few notes on each one of it. So recite with me. Love is patient. Let's say it together. Love is patient. Loving people are willing to tolerate the shortcomings of others. A patient love is an empathetic love. An empathetic love sits down or on biases or judgments in order to hear their perspective and to listen to the core messages of what is happening. Patient love isn't agreeing or affirming. Patient love recognizes that I have faults too, that I need growth, and that we both need the working of the Spirit. This love is patience. Jesus commands us to have compassion as he has compassion. The second is, love is kind. Let's say that together. Love is kind. Kind love treats all people, regardless of who they are, with respect and compassion. Kind love treats people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, social classes, as I would want to be treated. It's a kind love. Let's read this. Love does not envy. Let's say it together. Love does not envy. Loving people are not envious, jealous, or threatened by the success of other people. This means that we can celebrate the successes of one another because we know that the success of one another is actually the benefit for the body. Love does not envy, meaning that love goes alongside and mourns with people who mourn. It doesn't look at you and say, well, you got what you deserve. This type of love that is hased, is patient, it's kind, it comes alongside. Let's read the next. Love does not boast. Say that with me. Love does not boast. Several times, Paul has addressed the Corinthians as boastful people, putting others down because of their perceived knowledge. They make others look or feel foolish. Boasting is not just bragging, it's a posturing. 
It's a placing yourself above others. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 11, where the wealthy would come and they would eat all of the supper, the meal that was provided, that was supposed to be the Lord's supper. They would get drunk on the wine and they would excommunicate those that were poor or had nothing among them. They were posturing themselves. They were boasting, and Paul says, this is not love. Next, we see love is not rude. Say that with me. Love is not rude. This doesn't mean necessarily mean or short or quiet. It means indecently or sexually or morally. It means acting in these ways. It doesn't just mean being cold. It means interacting with people as you should not. And this is what we have seen in the church at Corinthians. Let's read this. Love is not self-seeking. Say that with me. Love is not self-seeking. Loving people do not attempt to advance their own interest, especially at the expense of others. Love is not easily angered. Say that. Love is not easily angered. Loving people have a deep well of mercy and grace to pull from. Loving people have a gentle and quiet spirit. It doesn't mean that you are a pushover. Was Jesus easily angered? Was Jesus a pushover? No, Jesus had a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus was not easily angered. The few times that we do see Jesus get angered is when there are people that are keeping those less from them from coming to God the money changers, the exchangers in the temple. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Let's say that together. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will remember their sins no more. I forgive their iniquity. And friend, like if you are here this morning, trust in this good God who though we are sinful, though we have made a mess of our lives, if we bring our sin to Christ Jesus and we lay it bare before him, he will keep no record of your wrong. And so for us as a church, this is how we should operate. Record keeping has a way of bringing up past failures to control or manipulate people. Now keeping no record of wrong does not mean, it does not mean that sin still doesn't hurt. Keeping no record of wrong does not mean, well, you should just forgive and forget. This is another way to manipulate. Keeping no record of wrong means that you don't have an ax to grind. Keeping no record of wrong means that you don't withhold forgiveness. And just, this might speak particular to some husbands and wives as marriage can be hard. This might be the most tempting thing to do within a marriage is to keep small records of wrongs or how we've been wronged or holding grudges or having a uh, one-for-one type of relationship, but this is not what we're called to. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And think of what Paul says. He takes a very firm stand on the matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and talking about lawsuits. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Second, we see this. Another, we see this. Love does not delight in evil. Let's say that together. Love does not delight in evil. Suffering, injustice, sickness, it does not rejoice in seeing the missteps or struggle of others. In our world, the culture that we live in delights 
in seeing evil happen to our enemies. It delights in seeing our political foes put down and put in their right place, and we delight in that. Because it makes us feel firm. It makes us feel right. It makes us feel secure when we have the power. But love does not delight in this type of evil. And on a much smaller scale, within our church, we should not delight in evil. We should not celebrate forbidden relationships like in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, should you not rather mourn? When we see evil happen, should we not rather mourn? We see this, love rejoices with the truth. Let's say that together. Love rejoices with the truth. We seek justice. Micah 6 8, seek justice. We seek repentance and restoration. First, rejoicing in the truth means that we tell God the truth. When we think about rejoicing in the truth, we think about when others are brought to the light, when we see others being confronted in their mistruth, and so we delight in that they've been brought to light. But our first rejoicing in truth, our first place where we should rejoice in truth is that it brings us to complete honesty and surrender and humility before God. We rejoice in truth that we can confess our sins freely to him because he keeps no record of wrong, because his love is said, it's unfailing, it's faithful. Then let's read this. Love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Let's say that together. Love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Thank you. Consider love that always protects. We talked earlier about 1 Corinthians 11 where they're exposing those who are hungry and vulnerable. But imagine if it was the opposite, a love that protected, a love that looks out for the interest of others, that seeks to help others. Love always trusts, which means love does not give up on a bad day. Love remains faithful despite shortcomings. Love trusts that changed people will change. That people that are working through the process of sanctification as they lovingly submit their lives to Jesus, that they still have all of their faults, but loving trusts that changed people will change. I mean, is this not Paul? Thank goodness Paul has this attitude towards this church in Corinth who are sexually immoral, who are uh, dividing the church, who are getting drunk on wine. Thank goodness that Paul says, no, change people change. You are spirit-filled people. Walk in this manner of love. Love always hopes. Loving people keep looking ahead to better days. The process of sanctification, the working of the spirit, that it will have its work one day when it is finished. And that love perseveres. In the midst of trials and hardships, love remains. As so I was thinking about these things, about what love is, you know, it's fitting, I guess, that this is on Father's Day. Because is this not a high calling for us dads? Is this not the ultimate calling? How can we rightly love others when we're not first loving our own family well? Let me tell you, if, if you read these things and you're struggling to know how that might play out in your own life, in your own family, 
Let me just highlight a few men in our room that have done this well. And this is not to exclude our women or to exclude other men. I just want to highlight a few men within our body who have loved this way well. If you've not met one of our new members, Mr. Verley, Mr. Verley has loved, uh, loved his wife, Shirley, well. She recently passed away, but had been sick and homebound for a long time. Mr. Verley cared for her needs. He sacrificed for her. He loved her in every way. Think, every Sunday morning, when you watch Charles Hutzler and Miss Brenda, and how Brother Charles loves his bride. Man, I, can, I pray that the Lord would build this kind of love within me for my own life. As you see him hold her hand, walk with her to the car, make sure she's okay, that she's, she's never in a place where she is alone or vulnerable. Mr. Charles, Brother Charles is always there by her side. Man, if you want to know how to love well, man, watch these two men. Watch Brother Charles. This is the kind of love that is said. It's unfailing. Always hopes. Always protects. Perseveres to the end. And the last point is this. Love remains. Paul says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror when we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here's the, the hope for us this morning, is that Christ's love for you is to the end. Just like John 13, 1. He loves you to the end. It will never fail. And what's interesting here is what the Corinthians have built up, prophesying or tongues or things of this nature. And Paul says, these things will pass away. And in fact, not only will they pass away, you see them very dimly. You don't even see them fully. But one day when those things pass away, we will see love completely. And we've seen love completely in Jesus. So where does this leave us? First, it, it leaves us here. We put away childish things. And this means that my life continually and consistently needs examining. What are my motives? Do my motives make me a noisy gong? Do I have faith? Do I have a strong faith for our church and leading our church but have no love? Am I giving without loving? Am I argumentative, cold? Where am I tempted? Where, where is it in my life that is still like a child? Second, to be a person of hased, you must first be filled with God's hased. What is in the heart of God? Consider this. Christ's love for you predates his judgment. Even before he peered into your heart to see nothing there but evil, 
He said, I love you. Jesus doesn't inspect the hearts of humanity to find a select few worthy of his love. He just simply loves. He loves indiscriminately. He loves lavishly. He loves toddlers and terrorists. He loves Jews and Muslims. He loves the elderly. He loves those who hate him, ignore him. He loves those who worship him. He's the kind of God that you can trust not just when times are good, but when your life looks like the twisted ruins spit out by a tornado. Because he's the kind of God who will sit with you as you weep, hold you as you scream in anger, and bring you to the cross. What's in the heart of God? It's Jesus, the man who endured hell for us, a man who had everything but gave it all up in exchange for us. That man, Jesus, is all God, and all God is him. When you want to know what God thinks of you, listen to me clearly. When you want to know what God thinks of you, the answer is suspended on a cross. He loves you. To the uttermost, he loves you to the end. And this should then require for us a great deal of humility. The ideal of love is always found in God who loves with a perfect love, yet he has given us a spirit to begin this work of instilling his fruit of love within our hearts because we are imperfect. We are not God. And when we fail, we must remember that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, forgiving and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, that he is chesed. And then lastly, we should see that this type of love calls us to a more excellent way, to chesed for others, to be unfailing towards others, to be committed towards our church, to love deeply and fully, and to love until the end. One day, we, one day, the men and women that make up Alpine First Baptist Church right now, we will not be here. We will hand the baton off to the next generation behind us. And what we want to hand off to them is the hope and trust of the gospel that God's love never fails. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you can make us people of love, of deep, unending love. And Father, that as we abide in your love, that we can become people of love. Father, I confess my own stubbornness and hardness of heart that often makes me not unable to love, but unwilling to. Anger that can still well up in my heart. Coldness and bitterness that is still within me. And so, Father, I pray by your spirit that, that you have your way, not only with me, but with our church, and that you make our church a church of hesed, a church of unfailing love, because we are a spirit-filled people that is continually reminded and trusting and hoping and persevering through your unfailing love for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.